it's not the kind of thing where you can go out and just start testing a product early on because you can get in pretty serious legal trouble. <laughs> so there is a lot more kind of zero to one work that goes into most fintech companies than into your average like consumer or B2B SaaS company. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Gopi Rangan. I'm here with Jake Gibson. He's the founding partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures. He's one of the most active and most experienced fintech venture capital investors. He's based in the Silicon Valley and invests in very early stage startups. Previously, he was an active angel investor, was an investor at 500 Fintech, and also the co-founder of NerdWallet, one of the earliest fintech startups. Jake, welcome back to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us about your new fund. You just closed a brand new fund and you have an amazing team that fintech is going to touch every part of the world. I want to hear a little more about your plans for the future at Better Tomorrow Ventures. Yeah, ever since our first fund back in 2019, the cover of our pitch decks has always said everything is fintech. Because we have this view that finance is becoming technology and technology is permeating everything. So it's only a matter of time before finance permeates everything. You hear stuff like this all the time with crypto people. This is kind of exactly the sort of lines that they use to talk about what's going on in the blockchain space. But we don't believe that the blockchain or crypto is strictly necessary for this to become true. We just feel that as finance is moving from this world of being brick and mortar, paper, PDFs, emails, and handholding human processes to being more programmable via all this new fintech infrastructure and stuff, we feel like it's only a matter of time before that sort of software kind of starts to permeate everything we do and that we move more towards a customer-centric world instead of a product-centric world. Another way to think about this whole idea is that finance in the past has been, like I said, kind of focused on these products where you have a bank that's this monolithic organization and they have one department that sells you checking accounts and maybe savings accounts. They have another department that will sell you a mortgage, another department that will sell you an auto loan. And it's very focused on like, let's create products for the mass market and then just spend a bunch of money on marketing to get them in front of as many people as possible versus like, I have tailored this product specifically to you and your situation. And I'm going to give it to you in the context in which it actually matters and solve a very unique problem for you, which is the way the internet works. All of the technology products that we use have that latter customer focus. The financial industry still seems to be stuck in the product focused world. So as financial products become more programmable, and as we have more and more of this financial infrastructure that lowers the barriers to building these sorts of products, we think that we're going to start to see finance pop up more contextually for a user when they're facing a certain problem or when they're in a certain application. And it will present you with a way to pay, a way to save money, a way to kind of send or deliver money, a way to borrow money or what have you. This based specifically on the context in which you're in. If you're a Shopify seller, for example, and you spend your whole life on Shopify managing your business, there's no reason why your bank accounts and stuff should be over at Wells Fargo, totally disconnected from the rest of your life. When Shopify could offer you a business bank account, they know a lot more about your business than Wells Fargo does and can give you working capital loans and things like that or loan money to you against your inventory. Just kind of keep it all contained into one model. That, generally speaking, is how we think the financial world is starting to trend. 
How true is that thesis, everything is fintech today, compared to when you started with that thesis, when you founded Better Tomorrow Ventures? I understand that the financial services world, companies are stuck in stone age, a lot of digital transformation waiting to happen, even on the far end of consumer interface, pretty much every sector within financial services, payments, investing, banking, insurance, all of those topics are transforming. I'm curious to see if it played out the way you expected when you started. Yeah, I mean, it certainly caught on, at least in terms of mindshare, has played out a lot more quickly than I would have expected. When Sheila and I first started putting together the strategy for the fund, we had this idea about embedded fintech and everything is fintech. From some of the stuff that we'd seen playing out in our prior investments, at the time, we thought it was novel. But then within a few months after I started to pitch this, you see Andreessen talking to their LPs about it at their annual meeting and, and then writing a bunch of public content about it. And Matt Harris from Bain Capital comes out with a bunch of content talking about the fourth platform. And it became a really buzzy thing very quickly. There was a while there in 2020 and 2021 when all you had to do was basically write fintech infrastructure on a napkin and you could raise money from anybody you wanted to. And at least that's how it felt. We thought we'd have a few years to plant our seeds and start to build a strategy around this idea. In terms of actual usage and how it's changing outcomes for the end users, it's still very early. Even our portfolio company, Unit, which is the first investment we made out of Fund One, they're kind of the cornerstone of this whole strategy for us. It's a banking as a service platform. And we've also invested in a bunch of companies that are Unit customers. They've achieved amazing things over the last few years, and they have a ton of customers. But in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the size of the banking industry, or even just the size of like the commercial banking industry, and then you look at the transaction volumes at Unit, there's still a long way to go for us to prove that this thesis is going to play out in a meaningful way. The mindshare part is true. Uh, more people are paying attention to fintech. But solution-wise, we're still a long way to solving many important problems. So you feel like we haven't reached peak fintech yet. Is that right? No, definitely not. So... I think, But there are so many VCs focusing on fintech, and pretty much every VC firm is investing in fintech these days. Haven't we reached peak fintech? Financial services is something like 25% of global GDP. We have barely begun to scratch the surface in terms of technology adoption within that industry and in terms of disrupting any of the business models of the traditional financial sector. I would also say that when we were investing our last fund, 500 FinTech, back in like 2016 and 2017, everybody thought FinTech was done. And that the previous wave of like the lending clubs of the world uh, had proven that there weren't the same venture outcomes in FinTech or in financial services as there were in the rest of tech. And that, and that FinTech was dead. It doesn't work. It's not venture backable, blah, blah, blah. We've made a ton of money investing at that time because we kind of had our pick of the litter of amazing fintech companies when we were building that accelerator because nobody else wanted to invest in it. And even when we were starting to talk about our fund in 2018, and then when we really started pitching in 2019, it seems crazy to say this now, but we had a bunch of LPs telling us even towards the end of 2019, fintech is not going to support a standalone seed fund, isn't fintech played out? so on and so forth, the same sort of things. We were hearing that back in 2019. How laughable is that after we saw what happened in 2020 and 2021? People were telling us this right when we started to see some of the biggest exits in fintech history happened at the end of 2019 and early 2020. And then it just accelerated from there, right when people were thinking that this was dead. I still think we have a long way to go. I mean, like I was saying before, this is such a huge part of the global economy and is still relatively negligible in terms of overall investment from the venture side relative to the size of the potential outcomes. We've also been hearing for at least 12 years now that tech was in a bubble. And that's true. 
Yeah. There, there were too many funds, too much capital chasing too few opportunities, but it just continued to accelerate for more than a decade. We did finally get a bit of a downturn here at the end of last year and early this year. But you would have had to be wrong and miss out on a shit ton of gains for a very long period of time in order to be able to now pat yourself on the back and say, I was right, it was a bubble. I think it's way too early to say anything like fintech is overdone or fintech is dead. In the short term, we might see ups and downs like this. But in the long term, there is so much transformation waiting to happen. And we're still, like you said earlier, changing existing infrastructure from pen and paper and fax machines to digital solutions. We don't even need more advanced solutions like blockchain and others yet. But if you look at the opportunities that will be opened up by advanced technologies, it's even bigger in the future. This is very, very exciting indeed. Can you give examples of companies and sectors where you focus your investments? You mentioned earlier that banking as a service is one area you started with. What are some areas that are important for you? We tend not to be super thesis driven. So we just try to meet all the best founders we can and hope that they can show us something new and interesting in the world that we haven't seen before. I don't think that I'm nearly creative enough to identify the opportunities ahead of time or identify what the most interesting sectors are to be investing in ahead of time. I really lean on the founders. This is refreshing. Many VC firms start with like, here's my thesis. This is what I'm looking for. <laughs> we have some like high level ideas, but we're not too married to them. You can't be too tied to certain types of patterns or certain areas because... This is about finding things that didn't exist before. You have to leave it up to the founders to discover new topics that we haven't seen before. It's very interesting. I'm glad that you and I are aligned. And I don't see that happening often in the venture world. Yeah, it's funny because we have the question all the time from LPs and stuff like, what are some sectors that you're not excited about or that you think other people are way too excited about, but you aren't? Every time we come up with an answer to that question, we end up backing a company in that space anyway, for the most part, because we meet the right founder who convinces us that they have a different approach, a different product, or something along those lines. We just find somebody that we feel like we absolutely have to back, or they end up kind of pivoting into a space that we aren't super excited about, but then really crushing it. So... We try not to be uh, too married to the ideas. I want to ask you about what's happening in the current world today, but can you give a few examples of startups you've invested in and then we'll jump into trends today? How did you meet the founders? How did you form opinion? Yeah, I mentioned Unit already, so I'll piggyback off that one because it's also an interesting story. The, the founder of Unit was an EIR who worked with us at 500 FinTech when we were still building that accelerator. And we spent a couple of years with him. He helped out a ton of our portfolio companies and Everybody loved him. We loved working with him. He had previously built a company called Leverate in Israel, which was like a FX brokerage in a box sort of fintech infrastructure play way ahead of the hype now anyway. And had left with his current co-founder a few years ago uh, when there was a management change. They'd been there for a long time and, and just decided to move on. So he was spending a bunch of time hanging out with us, helping other portfolio companies. We knew that at some point he was going to want to start something new. And we always told him we want to be part of it. In 2019, he started kind of bouncing some ideas off the wall. And we, Steel especially, started to steer him more towards like, let's just make sure it's something in fintech so that we can back you. We're about to go raise this fund. We really want to work with you. And we'd love to make this the first real bet out of our new fund. Steel even went out to Israel and spent a bunch of time with him, brainstorming ideas and, and whiteboarding and connecting him with banks and other people in the fintech space. And ultimately, we helped him triangulate towards this idea of banking as a service because we had this whole idea around embedded fintech and fintech infrastructure. We didn't think that any of the existing banking as a service plays that were out there had really captured significant market share. They hadn't really demonstrated that there, there was a real market here. And so we wanted to help fund a new player 
to go do this. And then, like I was saying before, build an ecosystem around them. That's what they ended up doing. And they ended up being the first investment out of our first fund. You met the founder even before he knew he wanted to start a company in this space. Yeah, that's one of the things that we we like to do. I mean, we were founders at one point. We're still kind of founders. I mean, starting a new venture fund, while not nearly as hard as building a hyper-growth tech company, it really does put you back in the founder seat to some extent and put you back in the operator seat. And we love building. We like working on cool ideas with cool people. And so we meet people all the time where we just help them brainstorm ideas, help connect them with people in the industry, even if they're not fundraising. It's not something that we're going to be super involved in just yet. We just like to work with people and help be part of that zero to one process. That's very much a part of how we invest as well as we spend enough time with these people. And a lot of times they come back and say, hey, that was really helpful. I landed on this idea. You all always asked really good questions. You all were really helpful. Even before I was fundraising, I'd love to get you involved. And it turns into a, a proper fundraising process. When we were doing 500 FinTech, a lot of what we did was more or less like incubating businesses. And Itai was one of our EIRs. We had something like seven or eight EIRs over the years, all of whom either ended up starting something or joining one of our companies that we were helping start. And then there was me. I was the first EIR and became Shield's partner over time. We always had this vision that we want to do something similar with BTV. It's been hard to have the bandwidth. I think we need a bigger team and a more dedicated strategy for this. But we would love to continue incubating things like this or build another accelerator focused on fintech just to get our hands dirty at those super early zero to one stages again and help people come up with ideas and help people like really get them off the ground. It's something that's always been really appealing to us. You invest in pre-seed and seed stage like quite early in the first round of funding. When UNIT started 2019, the world was different. How do you see the market changing? Have your portfolio companies seen any impact because of the downturn that looks like we're in right now? Is fundraising easier for later rounds of funding for your portfolio companies? No, there's definitely been an impact across the entire industry, not just within our portfolio, but just from talking to VCs at various stages, other seed investors, Series A investors, and even some of the later stage growth investors. We have a bunch of them who are LPs of ours. We have a bunch of them who are just friends that we invest with or are on boards with or what have you. It's pretty clear that across the landscape, we're in a different world now than we were even six months ago. There's very much a wait and see feeling in the VC world at every stage public markets got hit pretty hard and then a war started and people are skittish that LPs are going to start getting nervous and not deploying capital as quickly. So a lot of these funds that have been raising a ton of capital year after year after year are going to come up for their next re-up cycle and who knows what's going to happen there. We're hearing that a lot of the later stage investors who are propping up a lot of what was going on over the last couple of years have cut their investments by something like 50% since the beginning of this year. Really? That's significant. Yeah, that's what we're hearing. And that naturally all filters down. So what we're kind of seeing now is like rounds are definitely still getting done. Hot companies who already had relationships with certain investors, or if you were the kind of company where people are already circling the hoop, trying to find a way to invest in you, you are still able to raise capital now. The valuation might be lower, but you are definitely still able to raise capital. Whereas anybody who's kind of on the margin is getting dragged along in a sense. So diligence cycles are much longer now. You're getting asked a lot more questions. You're getting a lot more kind of VCs dragging their feet and waiting to see what's going to happen. You're seeing less of people like really wanting to be the price setters and really make the first move and put the first term sheet down rather than just 
maximizing their own optionality and sitting on their hands until there's something that really forces their hand. And then I think everybody's kind of waiting for valuation expectations to come back a little bit. So especially with this last YC batch around that period of time, like people at the seed stage hadn't quite realized that public markets and later stage stuff is actually going to filter down to seed at some point. People were still very much trying to raise at valuations that were more like early 2021 valuations. Not the insanely high valuations we saw towards the end of 2021 and early this year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I think we especially have just been sitting here waiting for that to retrace and knew that it would happen. And as we've been pitched companies that are raising a crazy high 2021 sort of valuation, we, we've drawn a hard line on it and it's happening. Have you slowed it with your pace of investments? Yes. The bar for us is higher. We're extremely hesitant to invest at valuations that are more akin to like what people were raising at last year. So we've been kind of a hard pass on anything like that. In the last month, especially, deal flow has started to slow down a little bit. Everybody's started to catch on to what's happening and it's slowing a little bit. I mean, we have made a handful of investments this year, mostly international. We've done very little here in the US. And I'd say overall, our pace has slowed down considerably, especially during the first half of 2021. We were deploying at a much faster pace than we ever have before and much faster than we told our LPs that we would be and what we expected to be. We deployed that first fund in two years instead of what we thought would be three. And that was predominantly because of activity towards the end of 2020 up until the middle of 2021. Yeah, early this year, I saw companies raising pre-seed first round of funding at 30, 40 pre. I don't see that anymore. That kind of deal flow has reduced significantly. Have you seen any patterns in the companies in your portfolio or other startups that you've seen? What are some patterns that you see that makes some companies more successful in raising funding and building their business in current environment today? I mean, it's kind of what you would expect, like repeat founders. It's all the social proof things that VCs have always looked for. If you're able to check the right boxes, then you're going to have a much easier time of fundraising. We just came out of an environment over the last couple of years where, especially if you were in a hot segment, like almost anybody could raise capital. And now it's not Armageddon yet, but we're kind of back to more like normal times where I guess there's much more of a focus on finding the right founders, going after the right problems and traction and product market fit and all this other stuff that went out the window over the last couple of years. So it's the same things like repeat founders are going to have an easier time. Companies that are already seeing obscene growth are going to have a much easier time or have kind of already achieved some version of product market fit. Companies that are in a sector that a lot of people are still chasing, like the valuation collapse that we're seeing hasn't really hit Web3 in the same way, for example, because people are still chomping at the bit to put money to work there. So you know, companies that can check boxes along those lines are going to have an easy time. Yeah, in the traditional fintech world, companies with good traction, companies with good teams, they're definitely more favored the conservative mindset of VCs begins to now look for social proof and they take more time to make their decisions. I see that due diligence process is also much longer. But some of that is still not true in Web3. Web3 seems to be unaffected by the current environments of the world. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. It's always kind of lived in its own universe. What are some trends in Web3 that you are excited about? Have you made any investments in this area yet? Not in what I would call Web3. I mean, we have made some crypto investments. I would say that what gets me excited is that you have this interesting new technology. You have so much capital and so much talent going after it. There's a lot of promise to this technology. 
similar way, there's a lot of promise to the internet in the early days. And you have this new platform, this new software framework. So it's exciting. I don't feel that there's been a lot of fundamental problems that have been solved yet, leveraging this technology specifically in a way that any other technology couldn't also have solved. So I guess that's where we kind of get hung up is like, there's not really like themes in the space yet that I see that I'm super bullish on. I'm mostly just kind of bullish on the space as a whole at this point. I'm waiting to see real use cases where real problems for real people are being solved uniquely with crypto versus like things being built in crypto for crypto people by crypto people. You know what I mean? Instead of just building interesting new protocols that help you get bigger and bigger margin loans on trading your crypto because you are already in crypto and live your life in crypto. That's not exciting to me. I'm more interested in things like Goldfinch, for example, which are kind of leveraging parts of the crypto and and decentralized finance, the DeFi world, in order to bring lending capital to the rest of the world in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get access. So like if you're building a lending company in Nigeria or in Brazil or someplace like that and would have a hard time getting the off-balance sheet capital to build your lending operation because you don't have the same sort of access to capital that we do here in the US as a fintech startup, Goldfinch is bridging those two worlds in a really interesting way. But there's too few things like that that we have seen at least where you're able to leverage the best of what's going on in crypto to solve real problems for real people. Replicating what already exists in the real world into the crypto world is not as exciting. But can we use the power of crypto to build solutions and serve underserved markets that could not be solved by current infrastructure? That is very exciting for you. And that's what you're looking for. Is that right? Yeah. Do you have a mandate to invest in blockchain and crypto and Web3 from your current fund? No, no. We can if we want to, but we don't have a mandate. Nobody's expecting us to deploy a certain amount of the fund into crypto or anything. When we raised our first fund, we got the question a lot, what are you guys doing in crypto? This is back in 2019. And the context to that question from our LPs at the time was that they didn't want to hear that we were doing crazy stuff in crypto. They wanted to hear that we were sticking to actual fintech and not really doing much in crypto. We got the exact same question this last fundraise last year. And I felt like the context was different. I felt like all those same LPs now had positions in crypto funds that had seen the crazy gains that they were able to get out of those crypto funds. And I think they wanted to hear from us that we were going to do a bunch in crypto. So the tone has definitely changed. It certainly felt like they wanted to encourage us to get more involved. You have an open mind, but you're not eager to jump in and follow the hype in crypto today. We know what we're good at, what we're not good at. There's plenty of crypto funds out there chasing these opportunities. If we're seeing something in the crypto space, we have to ask ourselves why it's coming to us and not one of these more established crypto funds. We're not hardcore technologists. So if it's something that requires security audits and really deep technical diligence, some crazy protocol, we're probably not the best people to do that. Which is why we go back to what we know as financial services and what we know is consumption of financial services and then where the problems and where the holes in the world are in the financial services landscape. If you can show me that you're able to build interesting new financial products, interesting new financial services business models, distribution mechanisms, or what have you that can hopefully like bring better access to financial products to people that have been traditionally underserved. And the best way to do that is leveraging crypto rather than, than building on the legacy financial system. Then that's something that I think we can evaluate. That's something that I think we'd be quite good at, at helping build and where we'd have a much better edge than if it's just strictly crypto thing. 
What's your advice to founders building in fintech? You've been a founder before. What is different in the fintech world? What do founders need to do to prepare to build a company in fintech compared to other sectors? Besides the have a good business model, build a good target market and have a big market size and all of those things. Are there any specific things that is more difficult in fintech or different in fintech compared to other businesses? Depending on the business, there can be a lot more legal and regulatory work that you need to do before you can even put a product to market. You can't really move fast and break things. There can be a lot more biz dev work that you have to do early on to get a product off the ground. That can mean partnering with insurance carriers, banks, capital providers, people that are going to provide you with lending capacity or something like that if you're a lending business, partnering with payments processors, partnering with card issuers, you name it. There's all these different players and different pieces of the stack where you can't even really put a prototype in an end user's hands until you have all the pieces in place and until you've cleared regulatory landscape, which are related because a lot of times just piggybacking off of some of those partnerships gets you the regulatory clearance that you need. But it's not the kind of thing where you can go out and just start testing a product early on because you can get in pretty serious legal trouble. (laughs) So there is a lot more kind of zero to one work that goes into most fintech companies than into your average consumer or B2B SaaS company. Can you give an example of startups from one of your portfolio companies? What did they do right to manage regulatory landscape and manage the business development activities and the various things that they need to do to put in place before they start selling products. Who did it really well? The way I would think about it is like, it's, it's not rocket science. It's just that it's a lot of work, especially here in the US. There's playbooks for all this stuff now. If you went back 10 years and you were trying to do a lot of the stuff that's happening in fintech today, you kind of have to do it all from scratch. If you wanted to build an insurance company, going out and finding the reinsurance capacity and finding the fronting carriers and stuff like that, like, There weren't already a bunch of them out there trying to work with startups. You actually had to go knock on doors and convince them to work with you, even though nobody had ever heard of you. Same thing on the like banking partnership side or on the payment side. Or if you look at like Simple back when they were built like 15 years ago or something as the first mobile bank, they essentially had to like build everything from scratch. They had to convince a bank to partner with them. And then they had to build all the infrastructure on top of that bank. It took a long time, took a lot of money. Uh, whereas nowadays, there's there's playbooks for these things. If you're coming in from outside the fintech space, and you're like, I want to build a payments company, or I want to build a banking company, you don't necessarily know where to start. You absolutely do need sector specialists in your corner. And I think this is why it's been so great for us to have a fintech-focused fund with fintech-focused specialists on our team, as well as in our network who help our portfolio companies. Because when you're trying to partner with a bank, there's probably 100 banks out there that'll talk to you. There may only be like 10 banks who actually care about what you're doing and will actually work at a speed (laughs) that'll make sense for your business. And then of those, only two of them are probably even really viable for what you ultimately want to do. If you were to go out and just start from scratch and start go through the yellow pages and start calling up banks, you're screwed. Whereas if you talk to somebody who's been in the space for a long time and has helped a bunch of companies do this, then like, we can shorten the list for you. We can put you in touch with the people that are going to get you in front of the right people at the right banks at the right time and really accelerate that process. Or, or if you're trying to start a lending company and you need off-balance sheet lending capacity, there's a million people out there that will say that they do that sort of thing, but they all move at different paces. They all have different terms of engagement. You really want to work with somebody who knows like these are the three, four, five counterparties you should really be talking to. This is the size of capital you can expect to get from each and the sorts of terms you can expect to get from each. So this is where you should start. It just accelerates the learning curve so much. 
it's not that there's like special founders out there that find special tricks to solving these things. It's not rocket science. There is a standard way of doing things. Just that, that standard way of doing things is not documented anywhere. It's not out there on the internet where you could go read a checklist and figure out what to do. You really just have to talk to the right people that have been there and done that before. The playbook exists today because there are a lot of predecessors like Simple in NeoBank and NerdWallet, which you created many years ago. The business development that you had to do and the education that you had to bring to the market with every one of these partners was very different compared to many fintech startups today that can piggyback on all the work that's been done by the predecessors. I want to switch to the last part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you like working with? Which one? Personally, I've always been a big supporter of GiveWell based here in San Francisco. I actually met them when I lived in New York. And their whole model is basically to try to figure out where is the most effective place to put your money to, in a sense, kind of save the most lives globally. They specialize in things where you can actually measure the outcome of the dollars that you're putting to work from a charitable perspective. A lot of it's like medical interventions or like buying mosquito nets and stuff like that to prevent the, the spread of malaria because of the fact that it's all about the effectiveness of every dollar you're donating as a huge focus on the emerging markets and, and kind of the developing world. I've always had this view of like rising tide raises all ships and wanted to feel like every dollar I was putting to work was having a real impact. I was actually on their board for a little while. Jake, thanks a lot for sharing your nuggets of wisdom. You have a very refreshing view on how fintech is going to touch every part of the world. You actively invest all over the world and you have shared specific examples on what you see happening in today's environment as we are entering into a downturn. Thanks a lot for sharing examples from your experience. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.